Bob has a lawyer's voice. <laughs> well, it's 10:15 uh, on this clock, and what I'll do is I'll plan on going to 10:40, uh, 25 minutes. Okay, and we'll see how far we've gone, and we'll just stop at that point. That's probably the best thing. Uh, Wayne Malky came up to me in church this morning, and he said that he was going to have to take his wife Sarah home because she was not feeling well. So we don't know what the situation is on that, but uh, let's remember to pray for uh, Wayne and Sarah. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open up to chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel in chapter 20. And when you get there, let's remember what we covered last week. Jesus' authority is being questioned. They want to undermine Jesus' favor amongst the people. They want to turn on Jesus. Uh, the religious leaders want to turn on Jesus and have him arrested and get him out of the way. Uh, Jesus tells a parable beginning in chapter 20 and verse 9 and it goes down through 19 about a vineyard and it's a, it's a cryptic message which basically says that God's vineyard, Israel, and his people uh, have not been served well by the religious leaders and their leadership is going to be taken away from them and given to another. Now, he says that cryptically in a parable or in an allegory. And verse 19 says, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. They want Jesus out of the way. And then we look at verse 20. And so... They watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power or the jurisdiction and the authority of the governor, who, of course, would be Pontius Pilate. So what this group of people does, which is the Sanhedrin, made up of the priests, the chief priests, made up of scribes and other religious leaders, they decide basically to set up a surveillance operation. Now, if you look at those verbs, you see that. First verb is they watched him. That means they monitored him. Remember, he's taken over the temple. He's teaching in the temple every day. And they're going to monitor him. They're going to listen to his words. The second verb is they sent spies. Or they commissioned spies or agents to act on their behalf. They're not going to do this themselves. They're going to stay in the shadows, but they're going to have their agents monitoring and surveilling Jesus' movements and his actions. It would be like uh, a wife who hires a private investigator to follow her husband, see where he's going for divorce purposes, to get enough evidence against him. She can't do it. He'd spot her right away. And the private investigator could actually befriend the man. He doesn't know who he's talking to. And he may even confide in this private investigator thinking he's a friend. And might even brag about his affairs. Or it's like the FBI putting one of their agents in an international drug cartel in order to break up that group. There's a surveillance going on. But the Sanhedrin wants to stay in the shadows. They don't want Jesus to realize what they're doing. 
So uh, this is a, that's a very important point. Now the verse 21 says, Then they ask him, this would be the agents, ask him saying, Well, teacher, uh, we know that you teach rightly. We know that you teach rightly. That's a joke, isn't it? And we know you do not show personal favoritism, but you teach the way of God in truth. Now, they're setting this trap at this point. And here's the trap. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Yes or no? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Yes or no? That's your two choices. But they ask the question in a conciliatory way, in a nice way. Master, we, we're, we're concerned. Do we, do we pay taxes to Caesar or shouldn't we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, remember what this context is. Remember the context. This story that Luke's telling, he places right after the parable of the vineyard. Now, remember what they're trying to do. They're trying to undermine Jesus' authority. Okay? And that's what they're trying to do here. And we're going to see how all this fits together when we come to the end of this. Now, in order to understand that question, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not, we need to first ask ourselves the question, what does lawful mean? And let me tell you, it does not mean according to the Constitution of the United States. That wasn't written yet. Did you know that? This is not a constitutional question. It's not a legal question according to the American system of law. What kind of law do you think they're talking about? Moses' law. Moses' law. What does the Old Testament say about us paying taxes? So this is not about you know, constitutional law. Now the second thing I want you to notice is the word tax there. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes? This is not talking about income tax. This is not talking about American income tax. So if you try to use this verse for your arguments regarding income tax under the United States Constitution, you're barking up the wrong tree. Okay? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Somebody said amen. I don't know who it was, but I, I think I imagined who it was. So in other words, if somebody came up to you and said, well, should we pay taxes to Uncle Sam? And somebody says, oh, yes, because the next verse says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and they use that verse to support paying income tax, they're using the wrong verse. They may have other verses, but they can't use this verse. This is talking about a different kind of tax. It's talking about a tribute. A tribute. So you need to understand that. A tribute was a head tax, not an income tax, levied by the government on people that came under its power. This is what the census in Luke chapter 2 is all about. Remember when Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem to be taxed? Caesar was holding a census. He had to find out how many people were po po how many people populated the Roman Empire. And then according to that, he knew how many people would be paying a tax. And the Roman government levied a head tax of one denarius a year 
upon each person. The Jews hated this. Uh, the Jews were not supposed to have to pay these kinds of taxes. In fact, God condemned these kinds of tributes uh, when David was king. A Jewish king could not impose tribute. But, guess what? They weren't under a Jewish king. They were under a Roman king. Their country had been invaded. And now this king was imposing tribute. And so this is a tribute, and it is a constant reminder to the Jews that they are under a foreign power. Now, I want you to notice to whom this tax is to be paid in verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to who? Caesar. Every cent of this tribute went to Caesar himself. Didn't go into the government, went directly to Caesar. Every cent. Not to pay the tribute was an act of sedition. You could be arrested for that. Now I want to give you a history lesson. Okay? When Rome conquered Israel in the mid-60s B.C., there was a period of time between 167 B.C. and about 63 to 67 B.C. where Israel was absolutely free. For 100 years they were free. But in 63 A.D., Rome swept into Palestine and they took over the Jewish nation. And the Jewish leaders mainly the priest, made a deal with Caesar, made a deal with the Romans. We will pay you a tribute, and we will be responsible to collect the tribute. The religious leaders, we, as religious leaders and respected leaders in our community, here's what we'll do for you. We will uphold your tribute, and we will actually collect it for you. In return, you allow us to worship Yahweh, allow us to worship God, and allow us to have our temple. So they, they brokered a compromise with the Roman government. That was very strange for Rome to do it, but they did it with the Jewish people. They didn't do it with anybody else, but they did it with the Jewish people. So the religious leaders were collecting these tributes and every year sending it off to Caesar, but the people were not happy. The common folk were not happy. Why should we pay tribute to some foreign power who's invaded our land? And there was a resistance movement going on. And it eventually morphed into what's known as the zealot movement. You've heard of the zealots. And they got so many people behind them by 66 AD, 30 years after Jesus' death, they actually started a war with Rome, which lasted four years, and Rome just wiped them out. Destroyed their temple, scattered the Jews everywhere. So this issue of tribute is a really hot issue in the minds of the Jewish people. And so here's the question. Is it lawful for us to pay tribute to a foreign power, to Caesar? Yes or no? Now, do you think that's the real question? Is that an honest question? No, it's a question to trap Jesus. It's a question to undermine his authority. If he says, yes, pay it, then guess what? 
all the common people will turn against him. And he loses his authority with the common people, loses his favor with the common people. If he says no, Rome will see that as an act of sedition, <laughs> come right in and arrest him. It's a no-win situation. He can't win no matter how he answers, yes or no. So look how he answers. Look at verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. That was the coin that they, that was the tribute coin, a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. So, should we pay taxes, yes or no? And guess what Jesus does? Instead of answering their question, he turns right around and he asks them a question. That was an old rabbinical trick. Teachers today still use that trick. I do it. When I don't know an answer, I just turn around and I ask my students a question. I put them on the spot. That way I don't lose faith. So, Jesus asked this question, and it's very interesting to me. He doesn't have one of these coins himself. That's important. And this is the only time in the New Testament Jesus ever asked for money. There's never a time in the New Testament where Jesus asked for a penny. Except right here, and he does it for an illustration. And he says, well, whose image is on it? Now, Harold Keaton came up today, and he gave me a denarius. And there's an image on it. It's an image of Tiberius Caesar. That was the Caesar at that time. And then on the back, it says, Tiberius Caesar, divine, or son of Augustus the divine, the divine Augustus. So, on the image of this coin, the front image of this coin, is the image of Caesar. Proving that that coin belongs to Caesar. Because in ancient days, in ancient times, a person's name on something meant they owned it. Or a person's picture on something meant they owned it. Or a person's seal on something meant they owned it. So we do. If we own something, we put our name on it. Or maybe you have a seal and you put your seal on something. That means you own it. You put a name tag on the baggage at the airport. That means that's yours. It's not somebody else's. The image of Caesar on the coin meant Caesar owned the coin. He minted the coin. In fact, Caesar minted every coin in Rome. Every denarius in Rome, Caesar minted and he put his face on it. It meant he, these coins belong to him. And guess what? He allowed you to use them. He allowed you to use them. But once a year, he wanted you to give one of them back. That was called a tribute. This was the means of exchange. Now look at verse 25. Look what Jesus says. So he says, whose image is on it? And they say, well, Caesar's image is on it. Well, that means Caesar owns it. Now look what he says, verse 25. He said to them, Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If the coin belongs to Caesar, and he wants it back, 
then guess what you're obligated to do? Give it back. If you use it, if you use it, guess what that says? You're dependent upon Caesar. And now he wants it back, then give it back to him. Give him the tribute back to him. It's very important. The fact that they have these coins in their own possession, because Jesus didn't have one, the fact that they had the coin in their possession answered their own question, really. He didn't have to answer the question. But they're dependent on him, so he says, well, give it back to him. But that's not what all he says. Then Jesus says this at the end of verse 25. And render to God the things that are God's. Now, they didn't ask about any of that. Jesus just adds this. Render to God the things that are God's. And this is the real issue. The coin belongs to Caesar. Why? How do you know the coin belongs to Caesar? Because his image is on it. You belong to God. Because his image is on you. Amen. You've been made in the image of God. You're his mint. You are his coinage. God has stamped the law in your heart. And therefore, yes, the coin, give it to Caesar. It belongs to him. You're obligated to give it to him. If you're dependent upon him, you use these coins all the time, then give one back. But give to God the things that belong to God. What belongs to God in this case? We belong to God because we have his image on us, and that is the important thing. Now, the reason context is important, I want to show you why context is important. <coughs> why you just can't take a passage and preach on it or teach on it and then skip somewhere else in another book of the Bible. You know you always have context. The parable of the vineyard that Jesus talked about last week. Remember the lesson from the parable of the vineyard. Is that the people who were running the vineyard were holding back from God the things that belonged to God. Do you remember that? The religious leaders were not giving to God what belonged to God. They were holding it back. They're not concerned about that. They're asking, should we give a coin back to Caesar? That's not the issue. The real issue is, is have you given yourself to God? Amen. And that's what Jesus wants to point out here. Now look what it says in verse 26. Verse 26. But they could not catch him. Because he didn't give them a yes or no answer. They could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And so Jesus basically shuts their mouth with that answer. So their trap does not work. Now, the next section, in verse 27, deals with the next encounter Jesus has with people trying to trap him. So let's look at it. Here we're introduced to the Sadducees. Some of the Sadducees, then some of the Sadducees, who deny that there is a resurrection... That's very important. Came to him, 
that means in the temple, and ask him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. That's known as the leverate of marriage. Okay? Now, here's the scenario, verse 29. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second took her as his wife. But they didn't produce children either. He died childless. And then the third <laughs> took that wife, and in like manner, he died without children. And then the seventh also, and they left no children, and they all died. Finally, the wife died also. Therefore, here's the question. Here's the trap question. Trick question. In the resurrection, whose wife will she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, there's a couple things that you need to see here. First of all is that the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. But what's their question? In the resurrection, whose wife would? They don't believe in the resurrection. So it shows you it's a trapped question. And what they're trying to do is embarrass Jesus. They're going to show Jesus that his idea, because he does believe in a resurrection, his idea has to be absurd, and they come up with this big scenario that, and you know the Old Testament law, the leverate marriage, it was that if, uh, let's say, I, I'm married to my wife, uh, and I've been married, uh, we've been married two years, and we don't have any children, and I drop dead, then my brother, my next oldest brother, uh, he marries her. And he may already have a wife and a family. That doesn't matter. He marries her, too. So that she can have a child that will carry my name. That was important. The man's name had to continue. Well, my brother marries my wife and he drops dead two weeks later. It's too much for him. So <laughs> now my next brother goes. <laughs> Seven of them. They're coming up with this absurd case to show Jesus if there's a resurrection. What in the world do you do there? <laughs> Make a fool out of Jesus in front of all of his friends, all of his people. So that's what they're trying to do. Now notice they, they talk about the book of Moses in verse 28. They said Moses wrote about uh, the leverate marriage. And Moses did write about the leverate marriage. So uh, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Which one of the husbands? Because they all had her. Now... Don't think that this is, uh, we don't do this today, but we do have people getting, getting divorced if they can't have a son. Remember Henry VIII? You know, I mean, that's why he got divorced, because he couldn't, his wife didn't produce a male heir to the throne, so he married another one, and I married another one, and I'm going to fall off this platform. <laughs> now look at this. Look at verse 34, very quickly. Then Jesus said to them, the sons of this age, now watch this carefully, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are counted worthy to attain the age to come and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now notice Jesus is making a contrast. You see that in verse 35, the word but? He's making a contrast. What's he contrasting? He's contrasting the sons of this age. Do you see that in verse 34? This age. What age is that? That's the age in which we live right now. This age. With, look in verse 35. That age. Do you see that? That age and the resurrection. That's the age to come. 
And here's the point that he's making in verse 34. In this age, guess what we do? We marry and we have children. In this age. And if you die without a child, then your brother marries and has the child for you in your name. That's how, that's what, it, in other words, there's offspring produced. The progenity continues. That's in this age, see? But in the age to come, and in the resurrection, look what he says. Neither is there Mary, neither do they marry, nor are they given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore. Why? Because they've been resurrected. For they are equal to the angels and the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. See, in this next age, guess what? There's no more death. In the next age, the population is settled at the resurrection. There's no need to carry on a family name and have another child. That's how the next age works. Now, what the Sadducees were doing is, guess what they were doing? They were mixing the ages. They say, ah, uh, they had, she's had seven husbands here, and then, then whose will she be in the next age? And you say, that's not how the next age is. That's how this age is. We marry, and we're given in marriage, we live and we die. But in the next age, there's no death, and so we don't have to get married. We don't, don't have to reproduce. The number's already fixed. And there are sons of this age. We see that in verse 34. And there are sons of God, sons of the resurrection, in verse 36, in the next age. Now look at verse 37. But even Moses, Jesus said, showed in the burning bush passage, Exodus 3, that the dead are raised when he called, he proved that the dead were raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living, for all live to him. Now why are these words so important? Because Jesus is quoting Moses. They quoted Moses, now Jesus quotes Moses. The Sadducees only believed in the five books of Moses. They didn't believe in Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms. They didn't believe any of those were the word of God. They only believed the five books of Moses were the word of God. So to prove his point, Jesus quotes Moses. And he says, hey, you want proof of the resurrection? God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living for all live to him. So, here's the point. Is that they don't understand the teaching of Moses, the Sadducees. They read the book of Moses, but they don't understand the teachings of Moses. They can't interpret it correctly. Had they interpreted Exodus 3 correctly, they would have known that there's a resurrection. Because if God's the God of the living, and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just die and that's it, and everyone just dies and that's it, just think about that. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob die and that's it, Death is the end. And then everyone in the world throughout history dies and that's it. Then the only thing you have left is God and he's not the God of the living. What is he? He's the God of the dead. So it proves that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a hope of a resurrection just like we do. Abraham looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. He looked for that day 
a city that was going to come down from heaven that Hebrews calls the New Jerusalem. So it's amazing that they read the scriptures, but they didn't understand the scriptures. Whose authority now is being undermined? The Sadducees or Jesus? Jesus turns the tables right on them, and he shows them that they're the ones that really don't understand the scripture. Now look at verse 39. Then some of the scribes, not Sadducees, some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. Why did they say that? Because they believed in the resurrection. So Jesus divides the Jewish leaders uh, and turns them against themselves. And then verse 40 says this. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. He silenced them once again. So what do we get out of this? We see that Jesus has authority to speak for God, and Jesus interprets the scriptures correctly. And they don't. So in both cases, they try to entrap him, but they're not able to. And the point that Jesus wants to make is this. There are two worlds. There's this world, and there's the world to come. The world in which we live and die, and there is a world that's going to be produced through re by resurrection. And in this world, if you're dependent upon Caesar, guess what? Give the tribute to Caesar. If you use his coin, give it back to him. That's what you owe him. But, you're made in the image of God. His imprint's on you. Give God what belongs to God. <laughs> and if you do that, then you'll be worthy of the resurrection and the life to come. And you will be with God, who's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. But we'll stop there, and uh, we'll pick up next week. What? couple minutes over. Hope that wasn't a problem. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we do ask that you help Sarah Malky. May she feel better. May calm, we ask the Lord that you calm Wayne's nerves, give him peace in this situation. We put this entire room situation in your hands and we trust that you'll work it out. Uh, help us, Lord, to be patient. Uh, but, Lord, we ask that you move the hand of the powers that be to get us in a place that's, uh, that's workable. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.